Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Viz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 318, and today's guest is Henrik Wordelin, entrepreneur and author. Incubators are not a new thing, but some are certainly more successful than others. Take Prehype, a venture development firm in New York City, where Henrik is a founding partner. It has holdings in major success stories like BarkBox and Roe, plus over a dozen other venture capital-backed startups. As a co-founder of BarkBox, he was part of the team that built one of the most successful subscription commerce companies with a focus on making dogs and their owners happy. The company went public in 2021 and has launched several successful businesses internally on top of the core business like BarkFood, BarkBright, and more. Henrik's latest project coming out of Preype is Autos, an AI co-pilot for entrepreneurs, which is committed to making entrepreneurship accessible to all. With a focus on customer-centric strategies and innovative problem-solving, Autos empowers people to just get going. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around how greatness can't be planned, the details about Henrik's background, including his experience at MTV and how he ended up in the startup world, how Prehype operates, the story of BarkBox in terms of the full life cycle of the company, including the day that BarkBox went public, all the details about Autos and how it will be helpful for entrepreneurs, Henrik's A plus one framework, which allows him to be a bit more purposeful with what he spends his time on and live a more rich and meaningful life, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month, that's free, plus you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Henrik. Henrik, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about a lot of things that you've accomplished throughout your career. And one of the most successful subscription commerce companies that has ever existed, BarkBox. So there's a lot to talk about. You're doing a new startup. But before we get into all that, I did want to talk about uh, a recent post that I noticed that you had out there of why greatness can't be planned. And it was like this alternative approach for entrepreneurs and researchers on just kind of like this open-endedness that you got to have this different mind shift as it relates to being great. So what does that mean? Well, you know, I stumbled over this book uh, relatively recently, even though it's kind of a book that's been out for a bit uh, from this professor who is a professor in AI. Uh, He made a company, sold it to Uber and became their head of their AI labs. Um, and before that, I have told this story that I'll tell you and then kind of like lead into uh, why greatness can't be planned. And so everybody's always asked me about like what goals I have. And then I've always been a little bit kind of weirded out by how non-natural that question kind of came to me because a lot of successful people I've read about or I've seen talk, always talk about like, you need to have a plan or think about where you want to be in five years. And 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 one time I, I, I lived in New York for a long time and there is a, uh, there's a ping pong um, kind of club called Fat Cats where all the college kids goes and drink beers because it's a dollar for, for a beer. And in the evening when the kind of the, the club kind of slows down, all the jazz musicians kind of show up um, it's kind of the place where they hang out and they start to play. And I noticed that the band, kind of the orchestra leader, kind of find these, see these people as they kind of just come up and he points at them and they kind of go in the back and they kind of start to jam. And then sometimes he points at them and they go to the lead microphone and they start to play. And then you can just hear the whole orchestra go like, oh, that's pretty cool. And they kind of change their tune a little bit. And so I've always been thinking that the way that I think about entrepreneurship is more like a jazz musician than a pop musician. Like I've never understood kind of like the beginning, middle of end. Cause it's every time I try to say, I want to build a very big company. It's never really worked out for me. But when I've kind of started with first principle, like I want to be, I want to build some cool shit with some people I like, then that had like let me the good places. And so I've always had this kind of super weird story that I just told as my reference for like this way that I'm thinking about being successful in entrepreneurship until I read this book. And so this book 
is basically an argument for how we get to artificial general intelligence. And so the 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 way that he articulates and the reason why he kind of got into these experiments that he writes about in the book was because he wanted to try to find a way where we could kind of like do a leap step in artificial intelligence. And what he has discovered is that he feels as AI researchers, they do these rule-based systems. Like they basically tell the AI engine where to go. And his thesis is that you need to not do that. You need to let it discover what he referred to as interestingness, and then basically have it kind of follow that. And so the post I wrote was basically totally hijacking that concept for entrepreneurship and saying, what if we instead of always talked about what we wanted to achieve, but instead kind of like used where we was really inspired, where we got a lot of energy and we just followed that and placed those as stepping stones in front of us, and that might lead us to a place that was completely different than we'd imagined, but it could become a place of greatness. And so, I mean, like it's super philosophical and I'm sure a lot of people go like, say what? But for me, it was just a very inspirational way of thinking about building companies rather than I wanna build a unicorn, I wanna build something for a billion customers or whatever it is, but instead saying, I wanna just follow where I find things or people or customers that are just inherent, very interesting to me. And if I do that, the skull will take care of itself. I think that's so true. It's definitely a philosophy that I follow. It's got to be authentic. And I, you know, I've probably said this a bunch of times on the podcast when I'm talking to like a venture capitalist and it's like, you know, uh, B school students that sit around a conference room thinking of what, business are we going to disrupt? And I can only imagine with AI right now that they're, they're thinking like, what are we going to do with AI? What, what business? And like, there's so many possibilities instead of it being authentic, right? Of something that they're really interested and passionate about. And it's something that came out organically versus forced. So. Exactly totally right. Agree. And I think you're right. Like, I mean, you know, and, and part of the, part of the things that we've done now with the new thing that uh, we've developed called autos is kind of based on that core thesis uh, of what we call customer founder fit or relationship capital, which is when you're building a new company, instead of going your classic kind of MBA way of saying, where is there a big market or where is there kind of like new technology forming? What we do instead is we say, where are there customers you would like to serve for a long time? Like where can you find passion and kind of like empathy with the people that you're going to be providing a product? And then instead of looking for ideas, look for problems. So just identify a problem, real meaningful, hairy problem that they have. And then think of your products and services as basically thesis statements to solve those problems. And so we've been writing a bunch of white papers about that. And part of the models that we now created, which is Autos, which is this co-pilot for starting companies, is based on that core philosophy. Don't start with an idea. Don't start with a technology, but start with an affinity group and a problem that you like to solve for them. Very cool. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about the the, the new project you're working on. So, well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I mean, like I grew up uh, in Copenhagen. I uh, grew up with my mom. Um, my parents got divorced when I was about eight. And my mom was is a, is a very... Um, amazing, very kind of like, uh, I would say eccentric person who likes, who doesn't really feel that there is any limits for anything she could do. Uh, and when she, uh, when I grew up, she worked at the National Library and the woman that ran the library, kind of like back in the 80s, told my mom, whatever you do, make sure your kid kind of knows about computers. And so my mom spent most of our the money she had basically buying me a like a computer. And so while everybody else got to play soccer outside, she was like, no, 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 you have to play with the computer. And so I uh, I was pretty nerdy early on because um, I had this computer that I got exposed to, and then in the in the early '90s I got exposed to, you know, the early parts of the internet back when it was FidoNet and Gopher and Veronica and like early, early internet days and really kind of just got 
uh, infected by the bug of like using it as a tool. And so uh, I, I, I was always the one who started. I started the school magazine. I started the school radio. I, I did all you know, like the. I was always the one who was more excited about what he could build around school than necessarily doing good in class, but uh, always based on technology. Well, that. I guess this is a good segue. Like, so, you know, you studied social and political science, so you could talk, you know, like you could tell like your personality, it fits well with what you're studying as well as journalism too. Yeah. I thought at the time I wanted to be a CNN correspondent. That was kind of like my, my dream. And so, uh, I had practiced many times saying, this is Henrik Bertelin reporting live CNN. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, uh, yeah, I did my undergrad in political and social science and then my master's in journalism and uh, ended up, um, you know, kind of working for the BBC doing radio documentaries. Um, and and I think actually like maybe just to tie that back to kind of like the story told earlier, one of the reasons I got the job was because at the time, uh, and I'm dating myself, but the the shows that we did at university, we we did on tape, like like old physical tape that we cut with a razor and kind of like uh, sticky tape together. Except me, who had a very early computer, and so while the people I studied with handed in excitement assignments, which were you know like big tapes. I basically came with a compact disc with that was been editing kind of like on a 12 track kind of system. And, and so I'm not sure I was a good a storyteller as the, the people I started with, but my productions were pretty slick. And so uh, I got a job at the BBC after my first exam. Uh, the examiner at the exam uh, was from the BBC and, and he offered me a job. And then I kind of like got into journalism that way. And then you ended up... Um... Working at MTV, right? So um, I'm in the tech industry. I love what I do. But if there was a career path that would have been the alternative version of me, it would have been working for MTV. I watched way too much MTV as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> like an obscene amount. I just love music. And, you know, those videos were new back, you know, like I was, you know, growing up when MTV was actually showing videos and it was new. Um, so, so I was like, oh, so envious of what you were doing. <laughs> I mean, like, I, uh, I'm i glad you remember MTV. I feel like sometimes when I tell people about it now, they're like, MT what? And uh, you're like, it was a big thing at the time. Um, I mean, like, there's a funny story about it. I, I At BBC, I did a radio documentary about Europop music, which was a spe specific kind of uh, type of music that was big at the time. Uh, you might you know, have heard, like, the Bobby Girl song, like, that Aqua made and stuff like that. And, and so... Um, I was doing a show, a radio show on that, and I interviewed one of the DJs, and uh, and he asked, you know, and I, I kind of like dropped that I wouldn't mind doing some television at one point. And so he said, well, he called me a few weeks later and said, hey, you want an internship? We have an intern that's off for like three or four weeks. You can come in and get some experience. And I was like, that's great. And while I was there, um, I was writing my final thesis, and I didn't have a computer at home, so the boss kind of like noticed that I was sitting at the office until quite late and kind of struggled with conversation and, and heard that I knew a lot about the internet. And so he asked if I could think of a show that was related to the internet. And this is like, like late nineties. Um, so I come up, came up with a show. I pitched it around the building a, a few times and everybody thought it was kind of like a stupid idea. And so I got a little bit stubborn and, and, and ended up breaking into the studios at two in the morning and, and doing a live show, um, which were this interactive show that I dreamt up. Um, and, and then the next morning, of course, thought I would get fired or sued or something worse. And so I was a little bit anxious, but uh, MTV was a pretty rock and roll place at the time. And so instead of getting sued, I ended up getting promoted. And so I got to run product development for MTV International for quite many years uh, based, based on the stunt. Yeah, but the stunt from what I, from researching your background before uh, this conversation, it was actually, you were a pioneer of user-generated content, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, at the time it wasn't that considered normal, but, you know, I thought it would be incredibly cool to show user stuff on air. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, like we, a lot of the stuff what we did, 
we also kind of came up with the first, and it wasn't as big as in the US as in the rest of the world, but we also came up with the first shows where you could text kind of like the TV screen um, and and then ruled that, you know, ran that on many channels. And so I think it was just using technology in a playful manner and maybe back to their earlier point of, you know, it was just good fun. And, uh, and so I think, you know, playing with it allowed us to come up with stuff that then also resonated with the audience. So what'd you do next? I got, I met some friends, oh, I talked to some friends who had started Skype and they uh, were keen to do something in the video space. And so they lured me to join kind of like a project that was kind of ill-defined at the time. Um, and so they raised a bunch of money and basically uh, we tried to create a virtual cable operator. Um, and so we, I did that for three or four years and it didn't end up being a big exit, but it did um, allow me to really learn how do you build uh, a venture back company. And um, it introduced me to a lot of people and, and uh, I learned endless amount of stuff from, from them and, and from, from that experience. And so I, uh, after, I went a little bit to a venture fund called Index Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence. And then after that, I moved to uh, New York, where I ran into a group of guys, like four or five guys who had started a company called Hot Potato. Uh, and I got to help them on the product side, uh, building uh, this product. And they were lucky enough, we were lucky enough to get picked up by Facebook relatively fast. But I remember Hot Potato, because like, it was a very quick exit. I remember the investors, it was a crazy list of investors i looked it up again yeah because I, I remembered first round capital was probably the one that you know just connected the dots for me but it was a crazy list of investors for that company yeah i mean justin shaver who was the founder is this incredible person uh who had been at uh mlb and before and and done a lot of interesting work there and and so i guess in many ways we were trying to build like a, a system for uh, how do you check into activities? So how do you create a, a shared space if you're watching a football match or or what have you? Um, what it allowed me to do was it gave me a bit of space to figure out what I wanted to do next. And what I learned was that if you're like somebody who had had a few times in the ringer of entrepreneurship and you didn't want to go back to venture and you didn't want to go to a corporation and you didn't want to sit by yourself in the coffee shop, there weren't really any halfway houses for for kind of second time founders, and so I spent a little bit of the money that I made uh, renting out a big warehouse in in Chinatown, and basically, you know, told everybody I met who I thought was interesting people that they were very welcome to come and and hang out. Uh, and in that space, we created a bunch of companies that ended up becoming pretty successful. And so uh, anything from Bark, of course, that we talked about, but uh, we helped create Row, which is now a very big mental health company and managed by Q. We sold to, uh, to, uh, to WeWork and Anco and for them and a lot of other companies that kind of ended up becoming real meaningful companies. And so- And this is pre-hype. This is pre-hype, yeah. So this is- like a venture studio or a, like an incubator? Like what, how would you classify it? You know what? I think we look like a studio from the outside, but for the inside, we always were more halfway house. So we were more kind of like a, a uh, kind of like a group of like-minded quirky people that didn't really know what we wanted to do. And everybody was asking what we were working on. And so if we could create a little bit of a polished website and have one email, we could run and work on a lot of different things and nobody would bother us. Um, I'll give you like, because we started pretty philosophical. I still in the philosophical lane. I have always been very inspired by uh, places like uh, Abbey Road Studios or Motown or some of those physical places that I created these incredible kind of like uh, pieces of music. And, and, of course, like we now, we think of the Beatles and we think of, you know, like all the, the massive stars that's gone through these studios. 
But I would argue that there was like some magic happening in those physical rooms where there were some studio musicians, there were some engineers, there was kind of like a culture, there was like a methodology of how you were doing stuff. And all this thing came together around these very talented people to create something that was purely magical. And so I always wanted to create that for building companies and free hype we're lucky that we were just starting in 2010, 11, when the internet kind of industry in New York really started to pop. Um, and then we were very fortunate that we create, managed to create a space where people could come and hang um, for a while. And there was no real pressure and there was no real model and there was no real kind of way that people were expect to behave. And out of that kind of like, almost like art collective came kind of a lot of these things. Now, we're very structured in how we think about stuff. We're very methodical in how all this stuff, and, and we were lucky enough that we had a big corporate incubation arm of our business that created like the cash flow for a lot of these people to kind of like work a little bit for a big company and then kind of spend the next three weeks working on their own stuff. Uh, and so it, for me, at least, it was a very magical place that, that created a, a lot of the successes, but not in a very kind of predictable methodical way. And so I always feel a little bit, um, I always feel it's a little bit tough to figure out how to label it because we're not a classic studio. We're not a classic incubator. We're a little bit of a, of a weird hot podge of all of them. Well, let's talk about BarkBox. So um, how did you go about meeting your other co-founders, Matt and Carly. Uh, how did the idea come to fruition? What's the background story? I mean, like the funny background story is the first time I meet Matt, we are at a conference uh, on a boat. Um, and uh, this is, uh, it's kind of like, it's called the Summit Series. And it's kind of a bunch of, of founders that kind of like meet up, but it was on this boat. And he, uh, and if you if you pick the cheapest ticket you can get, uh, you were kind of auto paired with somebody you didn't know in this cabin on this cruise ship. Uh, the whole conference was on a cruise ship. And so I check in first into the cabin and it's like this, you know, nice little cabin on a cruise ship. And they have like a heart shaped bed that obviously have been pushed apart because you're kind of paired with a random person. I think it would be hilarious to push them back together. So I remake the bed as a hot uh. shape bed. And then I go up, I go up and, and have a few drinks. And so I go to come back come back to bed quite late. Matt, who I don't know at the time, has already checked in and gone to bed. And so I'm literally kind of like sneaking under the duvet with this stranger that I've never met before. And so the first time I ever talked mm. to my co-founder Matt, we were waking up on a hot shaped bed on a cruise ship, kind of just shaking hands randomly over the, the blanket. Um, but then we were sitting and talking and, and figuring out that we shared a lot of the same values and a lot of the same experiences in building companies. He, he had built Meetup before, which obviously is a, is a big company. And um, yeah, and then uh, we were just brainstorming different things. Matt had a, a dog called Hugo that was kind of his child and we were kind of blown away by how little cool stuff there was and so the idea of kind of a, a birch box for dogs kind of like materialized and and he was kind of exploring a lot of different things and I wanted him to come and hang in the collective and so I built the first version of, of BarkBox uh, kind of on a as a WordPress template just to kind of I guess impress him a little bit um, and then we started to show it to people and they start to say, oh, that sounds cool. I'd like that for my dog. You know, just let me know when I can sign up. And, and we were like, well, we have Square on our phones, so you can just give me the money right away. And it will kind of like, so I think we ended up having 70 customers of this yet to be invented product um, before we had anything else. And so Matt and I, at the time, didn't think it would be a very big business. So uh, our evil plan was to find a, you know, younger third co-founder that could kind of do a lot of the work. Enter Carly, who is this incredible person that can make everything happen. And so 
we kind of blinked twice. And before we knew it, Carly had gotten hold of boxes and products and we were being put to work packing these things. She had, she had started Uber in New York before, so it was already like achieved. Um, and so, yeah, and kind of like just materialized from that. And then the whole thing just started to move very fast. And then obviously 10 years down the road or 12 years down the road, you're a public company and uh, suddenly you're a big company now. Well, I think a good lesson learned right there is you built like a like an MVP, I guess, for lack of a better term. It was a very lean approach to building a company initially. You had revenue coming in. It was bootstrapped for a stretch, right? Like it's not like you were, hey, we're just gonna we got this idea. Let's go pitch the VCs, raise some capital, and see if we've got product market fit. You had already justified that, started generating revenue, already delivering product. Absolutely. I mean, like. Matt and I, one of the things we bonded on was like our dream about building a company that would never raise capital. And so we were very focused on, on you know, like, sounds like a novel idea, make a business that makes money. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, I think our whole ethos and, and the core culture were always, how do you make frugal so you can basically not run out of money so you can design your own destiny? Uh, now... We then end up meeting Re, who also was an investor in Hot Potato, and 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 and, um, and Mike Hirschland from uh, Resolute Ventures, and and they were kind enough to uh, put a bit of money in, and have been great partners ever since. Okay, but how did you go about scaling? Right, so customer acquisition is you know a challenge, and you kind of maybe hit some solid metrics, but to continue the expansion and growth over time is definitely tricky to the scale that your company hit. Yeah, I think, I mean, like first, Matt is just incredibly good with with online marketing, probably better than most people I've ever met. And so a lot of the credit is him. And one of our early hires was a guy called Rob Schatz, who then ended up building, be the co-founder of Row, um, who ran our, our, our growth at, at the time. I think the second thing, which I guess people could maybe use, is that I've always been passionate about not defining your business as the product that you, or the utility you provide, but kind of the problem you solve for the customers. And so we always saw ourselves as somebody who were trying to make dogs and their people happy rather than see ourselves as a stuff in a box business. And so over the years, we created a media company and a treats business and a food business and various services businesses. And so our growth were always these kind of layers on top of the core business that we had. And, and that's we continue to be our growth driver where at one point you kind of run out of customers in the specific segment you are in, and then you kind of layer a new product on top of it that you can then sell to the customers that you've already attained. Well, and you know, the audience, you know, the customer dog owners are a unique breed, no pun intended. And I mean, because they're just so passionate, right? Like, like we have a cavapoo at home and the dog rules the house. Like everything is catered towards Stella. Um, so it's a perfect vehicle for stickiness, viral social media content. And I was looking back at some BarkBox content and it just, it's, uh, obviously you need the creativity, but it's stuff that if you have that creativity and the vision, it is going to go far and word of mouth is going to happen naturally. Yeah. And I honestly think if you, you know, now obviously reflecting back on it, I think a lot of the stuff I learned at MTV, I brought into the BarkBox world where MTV was never about the utility of music. You know, like you didn't see shows that was how do you tune your guitar or five ways to attend a concert. It was how do you have rock and roll at heart? Like what's the culture behind music? And I think we took that kind of playbook and basically did it in the dog world where it was how do you make dogs and their people happy and how do you create um, experience design around that that can really kind of create more moments where you know on owners of dogs can make their dogs as happy as the dogs makes them uh and so that's why we were always very we're very early on social we are very early on content um 
and everything we do kind of like is, is seen through that lens. And you talked about the other businesses that were built on top of it. So, um, you know, Bark Shop, which is like a, like a chewy competitor, right? Um, Bark Care. So that's more, you know, caring for your dog. I mean, there's so many Bark Eats, you know, feeding your, so there's so many things that I'm sure lots of ideas came to fruition uh, for things that you could build on top of. So what what were some of the, the failures of thinking about other businesses that this is going to be the home run? It didn't work out, like some lessons learned. Yeah, I mean, like we have, as you can tell, we have many, I mean, like I wrote a book about it called The Acorn Method, which is really the philosophical view that you should grow yourself as a forest, not as a very tall tree. Um, and so that's uh, uh, the, ph ph philosophy, the, the philosophy also applied. Um, I'll give you a few, like maybe I'll start with the more fun one. Um, we, um, we created something called Box Shop Live, which were basically inspired by a day I was sitting in the office and I noticed that we, we have this big pile of dog uh, toys in the office. And I would notice that, uh, and it, it happened to be next to where I sat. And I noticed every morning all the office dogs would come in and they would kind of dive into this kind of big pile of toys, like like Scrooge, like, you know, in his money tank. And they would always like seem to be going for something that the specific thing, it wasn't that they were just grabbing a toy, they were going for like a specific toy. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, like, you know, like, we just assume that a toy is a toy, but like dogs uh, have person personalities, they have individual tastes, you know, like they have preferences. And so we created a shop called Box Shop Live, which were the first shop where dogs could do the shopping themselves. <laughs> and we put RFIDs into uh, tags in all the toys. We created these vests that the dogs could wear. And then we created a cafe where the owners could sit and chillax. And so basically you would book a time, the dog will go in, it could run around, play with the toys. And then on your phone, as you're drinking a cup of coffee, you could see basically the toys that uh, people, that, that the dogs kind of played with. Now, interesting enough, uh, what happened was that we would then present the result to the owners and the owners would go and buy the toy that they liked the most, like completely <laughs> ignoring kind of this thing. And so it didn't become like our own shop. It did uh, inspire Target to call us up and saying, hey, we see that you are thinking differently about retail. Would you be our partner? And now we're distributing all Target stores and, and other retailers, but Target was kind of our uh, launch partner and, and somebody that we're very excited about working with. And so I think one lesson is that while kind of like the original concept might have failed, the kind of adjacent kind of success would never have happened if we hadn't had that failure. Um, and I think a lot of the time successes are kind of like they're unpredictable and they are non-linear, but you kind of have to do all these different things. Otherwise you'll never end up kind of figuring out what it is, the thing that you ended that you should have been doing for the first to, to start with. All right. So eventually, you know, as you said, you scaled, right. And you, you grew and, uh, Bark went public by a SPAC in 2021. So what was that like? I mean, like, I thought, honestly, that it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You know, it was kind of like a, a, uh, it was kind of like, you know, a way of financing the business. You raise capital that way. I thought that until I stood there ringing the bell and I, I don't, I'm not like necessarily very proud about it because obviously it's a super vain kind of moment, but as a founder, there's not that many times when you win, like when you get acquired, kind of like just work continues the next day. Uh, when you fail, obviously it's very miserable and you lick the wounds for a long time. Um, and, and as you kind of, and if you fundraise, you kind of, you kind of know that the fundraise will probably happen a little bit ahead of time. And you never kind of, you never really celebrate the fundraise because like you don't really celebrate taking a mortgage on your house. Um, but ringing the bell was kind of the only thing I've ever done in my entrepreneurial career where I kind of for a moment thought, you know what, this was pretty cool. Like we did something pretty remarkable here. It's, I think it's like winning an Oscar, I'm sure for a movie director. Uh, and so for a split second, the imposter is kind of like 
demons <laughs> left the body. I, I mean, I had practice looking cool on the uh, you know pressing the, the podium, <laughs> and then I see the video, and I look like a six year old who just got a PlayStation. You know I mean, like <laughs> like my my whole face have like my 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 chins are getting cramps because I'm laughing so much. I'm I'm just very happy, and so. I mean, like there's obviously all the business side of it. Uh, and and but but really, as a founder, it was very profound. and it was as a as a person, it was it was just remarkable. and And I honestly think I've attained some calmness on the other side of it because we're not that many people who start a company and then and then take it public. and and that was. Uh, an incredible day for for me and and hopefully for the team and uh, and uh, something I'll I'll remember forever. Yeah, it should be recognized and celebrated because to your point, you took something from an idea to a publicly traded company, and very few entrepreneurs get to have that full life cycle life cycle journey. So uh, it is something that should be celebrated. And even though like now, like obviously, like a lot of other people, our share price have been, you know, like really been depressed after. You know, you can't really take that day away from you, right? Like you're either, uh, and so uh, no, I appreciate you saying that, but uh, yeah, it is, it is a, it is a big moment. Even though I guess as a business, it's just like a, it's another financing event, and and probably if I hadn't been as immature, I would probably see it more like that. But uh, I think the. the I think that would have been really boring if you were just on the, you know, that stand <laughs> or podium, and you're just like hmm, financing event. And then like confetti's coming down. You're like, mm, just another day. No. <laughs> another day at work. <laughs> remember, I remember, I mean, like I sat the night before and I, and I obviously was part of creating our logo. Um, Cause I ran, you know, a lot of the creative side of, of the house. Uh, and I remember sitting, there's like a little bench outside the New York Stock Exchange. And I just saw them roll out like this huge kind of like, logo uh i get yeah. goosebumps just saying it Absolutely. and i mean like being from like a i felt like the kid from copenhagen that kind of like had landed in america and kind of like suddenly you were on the big stage and it was a it was a very profound moment all right well let's talk about your your latest project so so what are you working on now yeah so i mean like besides bark and and, and the activities pre-hype uh my colleague at pre-hype nicholas and i got access very early to openai like to i think late 2019 2020 and i think in many ways had the feeling that i had back in the late 90s when i saw the internet i was like this technology is incredible and a lot of like the inventions and the developments and the leaps that we've seen with the internet, we're about to see again, probably just much faster. And so got very, very excited about it. Um, and both in Bark, but, but also in Prehype, we were then thinking, well, how do we take some of the workflows and some of the insights we have and how do we atomize it and codify it into something that could be useful for people? And so Otto's became our attempt of trying to take almost 15 years of running a process that helped people start something from scratch and condense it into a AI-based co-pilot. Uh, and so what Autos is, is a system that allows somebody who would like to build something but don't know what it is yet to come in and basically raise their hand to an AI bot and then um, the AI bot, all these autonomous agents, as it were, because obviously there's a big system behind, will then walk you through helping you identify what customer to serve, what problems they might have, how to reframe that problem so you can expand the problem set, how to ideate different ideas for it, how to build a website, how to make a pitch deck, how to make service, how to get customers in, and yada, yada, yada. So we basically are trying to give people who would like to be entrepreneurial a Iron Man suit uh, to kind of become that entrepreneur that they are dreaming about becoming. So what's it what, like, what's a good example of, of like how this would work? So, I mean, right now, and we tried a lot of different versions. The thing that's working for us right now is we run ads on Instagram. Uh, you say, it basically says, have you ever thought about selling something, but don't know what it is yet? Press here. And you basically are thrown into a, a DM with our bot. 
uh, autos the bot. Um, you can also go to autos.com and then kind of go in that way. And then it would very simply ask you, who would you like to serve? It could be somebody that you feel close to, or it could be yourself. And then um, let's say it was me. And then it might say, well, what is a problem you're trying to solve? And it could be kind of like a big, meaningful problem. I'd like to be a better dad and spend more time with my kids. But it could also be something very practical, like um, I get a lot, of cold, a lot of cold emails in my inbox. And they're not spam, so they don't get filtered, but they still kind of takes up my attention. So I'd like to get them filtered out. And then it will literally build you a help you brainstorm around that idea and make it better. And then the bot will build you a pitch deck um, that is based on something we call a lean product plan, which is basically a seed investment proposal, because that's an incredibly good tool to articulate an idea you have and think through a lot of the components that you need to think through in order to build a business. So who's the customer, what's the pricing, what's the market sizing, what's your first 30, 60 day plan, all those sort of things. And the AI system will build that for you. And then if you have questions or changes or things you don't agree with, you can just have a conversation with a bot and it will kind of update the deck. So let's say you don't like the logo or the name or the tagline and all those different things. And so what we see now is just a whole swarm of people coming through. I mean, I, I read somewhere that 60% of Americans kind of have a business idea. They're basically just not ready to try to you know, live it out. And so what we hope to create is a system that you know, potentially next year can help 10,000 companies being built, maybe over three years, a million. So really increase the velocity and reduce the gap between people wanting to try to be an entrepreneur and then actually becoming one. Well, I, I mean, this is going to be interesting just because uh, with AI, like so much is being done. And um, I was reading about a company yesterday that uh, raised capital, um, actually looking them up. So <laughs> they, it's an AI generated website for businesses and uh, I just, I'm like, okay, I'll try this. So I just went to the website and it's just like, what's your business idea whatever. And I typed in like a quick little prompt and it spit out this fully functional website in like a second. And it wasn't bad. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't as good as what, you know, someone building it from scratch would be, but it wasn't bad, which I was just like, oh my God, this is so crazy where you know, I mean, this is obviously disrupting like Squarespace, right? So it's just, uh, it, it was, I mean, it had a description that you can edit, but the description, I'm like, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, and I think we see that everywhere, right? You know, like that's, I think the cool thing about AI is if you think of it as a, a tool for people who are generalists, who have passion for solving a problem, I mean, like it's, uh, it's just an, a power tool that we've never seen it before. And so I do believe and I hope that for you know the entrepreneurial class, this will be something that can just accelerate how quickly we can build stuff and make it less stressful to run it. So I found the company name. It's called Durable. So if you go to durable.co, that's the AI-powered website creator. It's pretty cool. So uh, I just want to leave that to tie up the loose end there. But so, so what's your plan? with the new company like what are the goals yeah i mean like no i think we have quite big ambitions for it i i think we have always been fortunate enough that we've had a good roster of entrepreneurs and residents at pre-hype that we've been able to help build you know real meaningful companies now the reality is that we always had to kind of you know we were non-scalable as in we were only so many people and there was only so many people we could have in our office and we could Kind of help at the same time. Um, what we hope to do now is by using the scale that AI allows us uh, to, to do, then we will be able to help tens and hundreds and millions of people do the same thing. And instead of kind of having to, every time that somebody has a problem, throwing kind of like our network of experts at them, we can now, every time that we help one person, we can take that advice and feed it into our model and then use that obviously in a, 
completely scalable way. So anybody from any place in the world will be able to get access to the type of expertise that normally was only uh, reserved for the people who are in our organization. And so very, very uh, cool. it is a very real vision of, we think the world has a lot of problems to solve. And we think entrepreneurs are incredibly well-suited to try to solve those problems. And more entrepreneurship is good for the world. And, and a lot of people that we meet are incredible people that we feel could be real talented, successful entrepreneurs. And therefore, we'd like to give them a bit of help to kind of get there. All right. Well, one of the other things that I, I saw that you had written about is uh, a system you have for managing lots of different things that you have going on because you obviously are juggling a lot. So what are the details on your eight plus one system? <laughs> you know, I was on a sabbatical and I started to um, write in these small notebooks. And every time I'd finish a notebook, I would you know put it down and I would just remember, you know, write down again, whatever I could remember from the last notebook. And so kind of through three months, four months, like the best ideas would percolate like to this book. And the thing that you mentioned was basically something that I developed on that sabbatical where, which were, how do I create a method for becoming the person that I like to be? Uh, and for me, that is not necessarily being a high achiever in everything. It is to be pretty good at a lot of stuff. Uh, and the eight things that is meaningful in my life is if we start with business is making enough cash flow to make sure that I could pay for the food and the lights and keep my family happy. It's how do I invest? So how do I create compounding interest over time? So, you know, as I'm getting older, I don't have to put in as many hours. It's assist. How can I help people in courses? It's learn, which is about what is my output and how do I become better at outputting that with high quality at scale? It's health, which is basically how do I maintain a good, you know, hardware and software. So how do my mind and my body make sure that it can stay the distance? It's family. How do I become a good dad and husband and son and things that I would like to be in my family? It's um, it's relationship. I'm a little bit, maybe it sounds a little bit kind of weird, but like, I think we become the people we surround ourselves with. And so I think with that, you should be ambitious with the people that you're with, not necessarily for wealth, but just for good qualities and, and principles and, and something you know, that you aspire to be me of. And then the last one is ego or self-kindness, just making sure I maintain some time to eat that chocolate and <laughs> go for that walk. And then the plus one, so those are the eight boxes. And the plus one is to be purposeful and mindful of actually looking at those eight boxes once a week. And so what I do is I allocate time in my calendar. I go through the boxes. I think of, I look at where I think I am, you know, either underperforming or where I could, I could benefit from coming up with some methods that would yield a better output for the, for the resource I allocate to it. I'll give you like a weird uh, example. Uh, I, at the time, I, uh, I was playing, I have two sons and I was playing with one of my sons and I noticed that we would play in his playroom and I would honestly get a little bit bored of the game. And so I'd pick up my phone and he would call me on it and I would obviously be mortified and die inside when a three-year-old tell you to put down the phone. And I was like, okay, how do I solve that? And so I was like, in my next session, I was sitting and thinking this through, I would be hey, okay, I need to come up with a different way where this doesn't happen. And I realized that I used to play ping pong with my dad uh, when I was a kid and I loved it. And so I bought one of those things you could put on your dining table to make it into a small ping pong uh, table. And so the next kind of like time I was hanging with uh, my son, we did that and had a great time. I didn't look at my phone because I was still playing ping pong. And it was just like a, and then obviously we can do that over and over again. And then I layer more and more of those ideas on top of that. And I try to do that on any of in any of the boxes at all times. And so what I hope is over time to be in, increasingly a better version of myself in each of these boxes and hopefully then live a, a rich and meaningful life in that way. 
Well, you, you've written a book, The Acorn Method. It sounds like this system could be a book in itself. Maybe that's... You know what? I've been thinking about it, and I think I am I am drafting a few things and to that to that effect. All right. So I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn feed because that's just another good way to kind of research somebody. And you created this post that had an AI generated avatar of yourself that was scary. Like people are gonna watch this podcast and then look at this post on LinkedIn and be like, "Yeah, that." is freakishly good avatar version of you that's not real <laughs> i mean like i mean like i love playing with new technologies and i am i spend a good few hours a day researching the latest in ai and i feel it to be very difficult to keep up and so i mean i'm just blown away by the velocity of what things going in. and obviously with that type of avatar you know when you start to play with it you then realize how powerful it is, but I think it's also in the in the in the playing that you start to come up with ideas of how you can make it useful for your life. So, what are three apps you can't live without? <laughs> um, I will say, I mean, I should bring my phone and see what's on the home page, right? I would basically based on this, I would say ChatGPT app, uh, the plus version. I babble most like all my philosophical kind of thoughts into it. And I basically say, please give me a structured note version of this. And <laughs> like my, my babbling weirdness back at me in a way that it sounds not too dumb. Um, I like uh, the, uh, I like an app called bloom. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy kind of like kind of meditation type app. And so it's basically, I find a good way of keeping yourself a little bit kind of anchored Uh and it gives you just some tools. So kind of like, how do you make sure your mind doesn't kind of run crazy? Um, what else do I have here that people might know? Oh yeah, I use, I, I travel a lot. So I have an app called Flighty. Um, and it's basically, yeah, it takes the, the itinerary from your inbox. And it's just a really nice visual representation of, of where to go and what when what the gate is and how many hours there's left uh so those would be the three recommendations all right what do you like to do for fun outside of work i mean i like to do a lot i think well it's getting to be winter so i think skiing is probably uh the thing that's top of mind i i love skiing probably a little bit more on the european skiing which is more about drinking wine and eating cheese than the <laughs> GoPros and vertical drops, uh, but uh, but I, I do love being on the mountain. Well, Henrik, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the companies you've built and what you're working on now, and obviously all the great advice. Appreciate being on. 